Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist and the host of this podcast, From Crisis to Connection. This is a podcast about relationships, the relationships with others, of course, but also the relationship with ourselves and the relationship with our higher power. I believe we experience our deepest joys when we're in harmony with these relationships. But when we lose that connection to ourselves and others through our own unhealthy behaviors like addictions, infidelity, secrecy, abuse, and so on, or we lose it by being betrayed by someone else's choices, it throws us into crisis. Getting out of crisis and living in connection isn't always straightforward or easy, but it is possible. And that's why every week I bring you incredible guests who share their life experiences and expertise to help you move from crisis to connection. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. It's good to be with all of you. And today we're going to talk about a really important but difficult topic. And it's something I feel we need to cover. I get asked about this a lot, believe it or not. I get questions and emails from people wondering really what the difference is and how to get help for a spouse or a family member, a loved one who is engaging in more serious boundary violations, which can be called offending behaviors and things like that, where they've gone from struggling with a pornography or sexual addiction or an affair, these kinds of acting out behaviors to where it's crossed over into areas that now involve other people that involve violations that are much more profound and impactful and even involve legal consequences and so on. And there obviously is some crossover between these two worlds, but to understand the differences really does matter. And my guest today is Dr. Stephanie Carnes, who you probably have heard of before if you've ever done any reading or work in this area of sexual addiction and betrayal trauma. She's very well known. She's written a lot of books and been a part of so many things trainings and trains therapists and has done so much work to contribute to this field. And I'm so grateful that she was willing to come on here and spend some time with us, really breaking down the differences and offering her perspective and clinical experience and research, but most importantly, hope that there is a way out and healing for this. Dr. Stephanie Carnes is the president of the International Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals, otherwise known as ITAP. And she's a senior fellow for the Meadows Behavioral Healthcare where she works with sexually addicted clients and their families. She also has been the clinical architect for Willow House, which is relationship healing for women struggling with sex, love, and intimacy disorders. And she works closely with both Willow House and Gentle Path to bring her unique expertise to these programs and help clients who suffer with intimacy and relationship disorders. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist, an approved supervisor through AAMFT. And her area of expertise does include working with multiple addictions, families who deal with multiple addictions, such as sexual addiction, eating disorders, chemical dependency. She's a certified sex addiction therapist and supervisor and specializes in uh, therapy for couples and families struggling with sexual addiction. 
and she's written a number of books, presents all over the world, and I will make sure to put all those resources in the show notes so you can access her incredible body of work and the great contributions that she's made to our field. She's uh, been a big influence on my work and my professional career, and so I'm just really grateful to have some time with her today to talk about these things. Again, you may wonder, well, I'm not really dealing with this in my own life. I've never crossed over into these areas, or my loved one hasn't. I still think it's important that you stay with us and listen to this episode, just so you can become more educated. You never know when you might be pulled into a situation or someone might approach you and want support and help or understanding about these differences and how to get help and support when there's been some sort of offense. It's really important that we all become part of the solution and really understand and become more educated. So I hope you'll stay with us and listen to this, even if you don't think it may apply directly to your situation. Let's jump right into my interview with Dr. Stephanie Carnes. Well, welcome to the podcast, Stephanie. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Dan. So we're going to talk about some heavy-duty stuff today. And I've already warned my listeners in the introduction about how challenging some of this stuff might be. And so, but I can't think of a better person to walk through this with, with your expertise and experience. And I'm just really glad that we get to, to talk about some of this stuff because this stuff needs to be talked about, needs to be witnessed. People need resources and solutions and, and clarity around this. So today we're going to, of course, we're going to talk about, I guess, what we would call significant boundary violations, which when I was thinking about this topic, I thought, well, any boundary that's violated feels significant <laughs> for sure. But there are some that really cause a level of destruction that can be hard to come back from. And, and so can you talk about that for a minute? Like why, you know, why is it like that? Why are some boundary violations just so much more destructive than others? Yeah, I think what you're referring to, Jeff, is when boundary violations can become victimizing. And yeah. when they, you know, cross a line of where people are exploited, used without their consent in some way, and there's a victim involved. And when that happens, you know, the problematic sexual behavior becomes, you know, crosses a line and really it changes a lot. It changes the treatment trajectory. It changes you know, obviously the impact on the family, the impact on the person, the risk level, the, the individual is, that's acting out is taking, you know, there's potential legal consequences. And, you know, so it just becomes, you know, sort of a more acute situation all the way around. Yeah. And I definitely, you know, of course, I don't, we never want to minimize what it feels like for anyone who has a boundary violated whether they discover their partner with a secret life, you know, let's say viewing pornography or that they've done things that violate the explicit contract they've had in the relationship. I mean, obviously those things leave someone, you know, feeling very victimized and very hurt and powerless and and so we don't want to, you know, rec- we don't want to minimize that and act like that somehow doesn't feel like that or it isn't like that. What we're talking about when we talk about victimization, can you give some examples of that? where these significant violations really do change the trajectory of the treatment from, from maybe just more of a, a common sort of relationship betrayal? Sure. So we had a, a patient that came in recently that had been voyeuring his stepdaughter, for example, you know, using a hidden camera. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing that, you know, I'm talking about or where somebody is actually hurt because of some aggressive behavior, you know, that kind of thing. Revenge porn would be 
another really good example of that. You know, so it's really what we're, you know, another thing would be like exhibitionism or crossing the line into child pornography. Even, you know, a lot of people look at child pornography as something that just escalates from addiction, but there's a victim. That's a person that's been that's being abused every time those videos are being watched. And, it, it, you know, each person that watches them is another person that's victimizing that, that, that child. And so, you know, these kinds of things, you know, that are very significant. And one of the things I think I would say to partners that I agree with you, all, you know, problematic behavior can be very traumatic for partners, right? And one of the things I worry about about doing a topic like this is that some partners, in my experience, that will come across information like this or, you know, read something about this in a book or hear it in a podcast will be concerned that their partner or is also doing that. Yes. And, you know, I would say that, you know, this is a, a small minority of people with sex addiction or compulsive behavior. This is, you know, the vast majority of people use are using prostitution or, and that's, it's not that that's a victimless crime necessarily either, but, you know, are using pornography and prostitution and other, you know, hookups, affairs, you know, and don't have these kind of, you know, very significant boundary violations that we talk about. And I think sometimes when partners are learning about sex addiction, they start to have a fear that their person is also going to be doing this. So I would For just sure. say that that's, you know, to keep in mind that the vast majority of people do not have these kind of significant boundary failures that we're talking about. Yeah. And I'm glad that you add that qualifier there because I find this all the time when I'm facilitating therapeutic disclosures, formal disclosures with couples where we might give examples of questions that the partner, betrayed partner can ask, or we're trying to help them walk through that process. A lot of the times they'll feel like, oh, well, should I be asking that? <laughs> should I be concerned about that? All of a sudden it introduces all these possibilities that maybe weren't even on their radar. Right, exactly. And so, yeah, I, I agree. And I appreciate the reassurance that this is not widespread, thankfully. It's not for a lot of people that come in and get help. It's more often than not contained to the range of behaviors that you said. And I, I think what strikes me as, I'm, as we're sorting through this and trying to define really what we're talking about today is that these boundary violations, you know, obviously they're violating the boundary of their primary relationship by doing these behaviors or having secrets around these behaviors or both. But then there's often another victim involved. There's another, okay. there's another layer of victimization or exploitation or violation that happens with these that really does Change, like you said, changes the trajectory, changes the the type of treatment and the impact it has on everyone involved versus it just being between two people. Yeah. Well, what it really is, is offending behavior. That's right. Anytime you have a victim, exploitation, a lack of consent, it crosses into offending. Right. And, you know, there is a lot of, there is, I would say, some overlap between compulsive and addictive sexual behavior and offending, but there's also very distinct differences. And I would say the vast majority of sex offenders are not sex addicts or have compulsive sexual behavior disorder, would not qualify. Because if you look at, you know, the majority of the 
like the largest amount of sex offenses include things like rape, statutory rape, child sexual abuse. And, you know, the majority of the time that doesn't involve like addictive, that doesn't have an addictive or compulsive quality to those behaviors. You don't typically see like a lack of control and, you know, excessive amounts of time spent and, you know, continuing despite consequences and, you know, you know, a lot of those, you know, compulsive types criteria that we would use to evaluate an addiction. So, but you do have a group of sex offenders that do meet those criteria. Um, you know, addictive type criteria like continuation despite consequences, and, you know, excessive amounts of time spent and escalation and, you know, relationship consequences, job loss, financial losses, you know, those kinds of things. So you do have, you know, some overlap there between the two populations, but I think it's smaller than people typically think. It is. So I would say, and then then of course, there's a huge group of sex addicts that don't have any offending behavior. So if you looked at it like a Venn diagram, you'd have two circles with a little bit of overlap in between, but still two distinct populations. And I think sometimes people don't understand that sex addiction isn't sex offending. And, you know, the vast majority of people with, you know, compulsive and, and addictive behavior do not offend. Yeah, I really appreciate you clarifying that because I run into this a lot and there's there's you know there's different groups out there and others that are trying to you know do a lot of good but sometimes I think they send confusing messages messages like all people with addictions are abusers and that's just not been my experience in working with people who have compulsive behaviors or these patterns sure like they might be selfish or have some entitlement or you know keep secrets and gaslight and manipulate and those things are are certainly damaging and take away people's power. And, you know, you can make a case for abuse there, but what you're describing in terms of offending behavior is people that need a very different type of treatment and need to go a very different direction. Sometimes it can create more crisis and more, and really stall out the treatment that needs to happen when you're just combining these two worlds into one big pool. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why it's important for therapists to really be able to distinguish the differences and what the specific client needs for treatment, because there are different causes. (laughs) There are different situations that would entail different types of treatment approaches. So that's very important. Yeah. We have to be so careful about that at the beginning, because again, I, I think about from the perspective of a betrayed partner who is looking for answers and guidance about what they're dealing with and making decisions about their relationship and their future. And if they believe that they're you know, that their partner, their husband or spouse or part, whatever is, who's coming in with, like you said, an addiction to pornography or acting out with prostitutes, but yet they're being told that this is deep offending, abusive behaviors and that they're, that they're an abuse victim and all these things like that. I think it really does stall out and make the treatment much more difficult. I think even for the betrayed partner, I think it, it sends them on a path that perhaps doesn't really reflect their actual reality. Yeah. I, try to stay away from pathologizing language as much as possible just around everything. Yeah. Right. You know, I don't think that that usually is very positive right. for our clients. Yeah. So, no, I appreciate that. I agree. I agree. We have to be so careful with that. So if these two sort of circles, this Venn diagram that you described here, 
in my mind's eye, if that middle slice is not as big, perhaps as some people believe it is, can you describe for a minute what the two other circles are? Like what the, I mean, the combination of them, obviously, I think we can put that together, but I'd love to hear what is, you know, from your experience and research, like how can someone know if it's addiction and how can someone know it's offending? And I get that there's a lot of assessments and a lot of work into that, but just sort of like the headlines of that, like what are the biggest differences there? Yeah, well, I mean, the biggest difference is, is, as we were talking about, is there a victim? Is there a lack of consent? Is there exploitation? I mean, that's really where you start to be able to define Uh offending. But I think what is important is to kind of understand that client on a deeper level that's doing that and what is the driver behind that behavior. So because, like, for example, we do have some overlap between problematic sexual behavior and personality disorders and, you know, things like antisocial personality and, you know, narcissistic personality and what have you. And so sometimes when people have, you know, a personality disorder, it makes them lack empathy and concern for others. It makes their, their own needs feel, you know, very, very important to them. And, mm-hmm. you know, so you have, you know, that, individuals that struggle in that way. And that's a a different treatment process for for those individuals. You also have people that have very severe trauma and they're replicating, you know, trauma histories in some way, shape or form, or they have more psychodynamic type issues like, you know, resentments and, uh, you know, maybe They had caregivers that were perpetrators and they have a lot of unresolved feelings around some of that and it's manifesting in some of their, you know, sexual behaviors, for example, like having eroticized rage come out or something like that, where some of their unresolved, you know, intrapsychic issues are being combined with their arousal template and, you know, kind of projected into their sexuality. And so if you don't get to some of those, you know, more core issues and understand exactly what is going on with that client, it's very hard to understand, you know, what kind of treatment they need. So the first thing is to have a really good assessment and a good evaluation and figure out what's going on. You also have sometimes people that cross over the line into offending because of an escalating addiction. You know, so for example, right. like a child pornography is, a, you know, oftentimes that can be the case where somebody is just in an escalating porn addiction. They're going for the next novel thing, the next novel thing. And they're, you know, it's, it's just, you know, then it's violent porn and then it's, you know, rough, you know, or, or, you know, whatever, very sadistic stuff or whatever. And then it's, you know, some escalates again and escalates again to new and different areas of the arousal template until it crosses this line of, you know, legal issues. And, you know, it could be just part of an escalating addiction. Right. So you really have to be able to understand what's going on for each client to understand what kind of treatment because it's very different. And, and oftentimes, individuals that are struggling with this need longer term treatment, typically. And I, I usually would recommend residential for anybody struggling with these kind of behaviors. And there are many facilities that will 
you know, uh, specialize in this and take individuals like with significant boundary violations. And also, if there is offending on board, sometimes the best thing to do is to put them in group with other people that have been caught for their offenses. You know, so to involve them in sex offender treatment in some way, like take child pornography, if you have somebody that has been viewing child pornography and hasn't been caught, them being in a group of people that have been caught could be a great <laughs> treatment for them, you know. And sometimes they need a treatment that specializes in different things. There are treatment facilities that specialize in the treatment of personality disorders, not typically longer term care or treatment that facilities that specialize in trauma, facilities that do sex offending. And sometimes they might need to kind of bounce around a little bit, do a little bit here and then go to this other one because they didn't get enough offending piece at this facility. So they need to go to that, that one. And so like really kind of tailoring a treatment plan for that person. Sometimes it can be hard for individuals like this on an outpatient basis because many sex offender providers, outpatient, don't like to work with people that haven't been caught, uh, so to speak, for, with their offenses, because they don't have the same leverage as they do over the other people in their groups. And there's a lot of, you know, third-party accountability that's involved in sex offender treatment. And that is not the same when you're dealing with voluntary treatment seekers. So it can be a chore to try and get the right treatment plan put together for people. Yeah. Boy, as you're talking through this, I mean, I'm thinking of, <laughs> I'm running through, you know, 20 years worth of cases in my head and just sort of like recognizing just how complex this can be. And so why it's so critical to have good assessments, because I know there's things I've missed. I know there's things other clinicians and people that have come into my office have things have been missed. And so, you know, good training, which I know, you know, you and your organization do and trying to help get the word out and let people know that there are good resources and, and experts that, that can help diagnose this. Because I agree that the trajectory, it changes everything when you know the right direction to go. And there are also, too, it's important that you, whatever therapist is working on this is qualified. Yes. Because, you know, there's, once it crosses over into offending, you know, a lot of therapists will refer to sex offender specialists, which is really important. Yes. And making sure that that person is operating within their scope and within the appropriate licensure requirements for their state, because many states have, you know, if you are working with a, somebody with a sex, that has a sex offense and you are not trained as a sex offender treatment provider, you, you can, some states that's, you know, you're going against your licensing board and what the recommendations of your licensing board. So you have to, for example, be a sex offender treatment provider in your state to treat those clients. So you want to make sure that, you know, that the person, the therapist that is treating uh, your loved one or you or your loved one is uh, qualified. Yeah. Excellent point. And I'll tell you, there are so many cases I've seen where somebody who has offended and hasn't been caught yet will gladly stay in counseling with an experienced person, hoping that that will suffice for their relationship or their own healing, because obviously it's not going to have the same type of impact or depth that a specialized treatment would have also with the right. accountability. You know, if you're in a relationship with somebody who has offended like that and they're just kind of hanging out and counseling, are you hoping things will get better? 
it, like you're saying, it's important to make a change and to get the right kind of help. Yeah, exactly. Because if, you know, the, the consequences and the risk is so high. Totally. Or, uh, I mean, really, I mean, you have major legal consequences, you know, people get hurt, um, you know, abused. And it's so it's very, very important that they, you can act, you know, treatment works. <laughs> That's why, yeah. you know, it's, it, you have success, right? And so we want to intervene as soon as possible in cases like this so that it doesn't escalate and, and things don't progress and involved in sex and major, major life consequences. Oh, so true. And yeah, just to not hope things will get better with a few key insights. It's not like that. It's not like that. Right. Let's talk about the impact on partners, betrayed partners and children who find themselves in these situations, whether they're the direct victims or that's probably not the right way to phrase that. Uh, everybody's in these cases, certainly with, with these offending behaviors are victims, but let's just talk about the impact on partners and children. What do you see in your experience with this? What's this, how is this the same different from addiction treatment or other things like that? Yeah, well, I think that the level of trauma that these partners and sometimes kids experience is, you know, obviously increased. This is such a shock because nobody expects this. I mean, nobody oftentimes expects any kind of behavior from their loved one, but when it's these types of issues, it's, you know, extremely hard to information to digest. So it's really these, these partners are experiencing like the rug just being pulled out from underneath of them and it's just devastating. And so, you know, they're, you know, the, the discovery process is harder. And sometimes too, one of the things that happens is you can get into sort of forced disclosure situations because there may be legal consequences or potential pending legal consequences. And so sometimes family members have to be brought in and told things that they are totally unprepared to hear when they don't have the support in place. And so it can be, and, and sometimes children have to be informed of the situation when they might be young or, you know, uh, you know, completely unprepared. So it can be really have a you know, very devastating impact on the family and be very scary for them. You know, they don't know what, you know, if there's going to be legal consequences, the financials become uncertain. There's, a, it creates a lot of fear and anxiety. And also sometimes they don't, if they are getting support in like a partner support group or, you know, in, in a 12 step program, for example, they might feel different than other people, like their situation is worse than so other true. And compare themselves to other people and, you know, just feel really bad about that. And so it's just a, it's a whole nother level of, of trauma really for them. And I think more isolating too, like you said, because, you know, where, where some partners can, as hard as it might be to talk about, you know, out of control sexual behavior or compulsive behaviors, this other stuff crosses, crosses a line, just, you know, community standards, just, just sort of like, it's so shameful why would right. you stay with somebody like this? I mean, the, the questions start flying, the judgments, the the criticism, the the panic. 
it, you know, Absolutely. and you see, you see, I, I see every time, you know, on Facebook or on social media, or when there's news articles about somebody who offends, the comments are just, right? I mean, they're, they're just- There's no compassion. No, it's there's like homicidal no. stuff. It's like, you know, this person deserves to die. I mean, it just gets so polarized and it's not helpful for these betrayed partners and children who see this. Right, right. Or the, the person with the problematic behavior. Oh, right? for sure. That's, for sure. You know, that's a human being. That's right. That, and, you know, they have, you know, it's likely a very long history of complex trauma in, in most cases. And, you know, they're struggling as well. And these are human beings that deserve compassion, you know, and it's hard. I think our society doesn't support that viewpoint oftentimes, but it's, it's true. You know, this is, you know, the person deserves compassion, support, and treatment as does the whole family. Right. Exactly. And in my experience, I don't, I don't work a ton with this population, but I, but I, I do know that a lot of the partners and family members uh, feel mixed about, you know, they might need to set some limits or boundaries or distance themselves from, from the, you know, the offender in, you know, in terms of safety reasons, but also just emotionally or relationally. But there's also, there's also this lingering part of them that also hopes that they'll heal. They'll get some help. Something will change, right? Yeah. Like they're, they can see that humanity. They can see that. And, 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 and we're not helpful to people when we, when we become polarized like that. And, and people do change. People oh, yeah. with, you know, these kinds of issues do change and get better. Thank so you. It's, yeah. not, it's not like something that is a, you know, that they are necessarily are going to be like this forever. Right. You so know, if they don't get support, it's always a risk, right? If they don't get good treatment and, um, you know, stay extremely diligent in recovery, you know, that's the other thing that's very different when you, an issue like this, I mean, you have to be, uh, you know, 110% in your recovery all the time and yeah. really be very diligent on your boundaries and on your support and to protect yourself and your. Yeah. So true. So true. The level of accountability and long-term vigilance. Yeah. Is, is again, I, it, I find myself kind of tripping up on this a little bit as we talk about it, because it, it matters as well for addiction recovery yeah. treatment as well. Sure. It all, it all matters. The stakes are high everywhere, but, but I hope as you're listening you know, to my listeners, I hope as you're, you're hearing this, you can sense what we're talking about here in terms of the fact that the legal and interpersonal consequences and, and individual consequences that happen when people are violated does take it to a different level for sure. And so in terms of, you know, necessary steps, um, if, if, you know, I, I have people that email me or write to me or ask questions about situations where they've been violated or a loved one has, and they, they just wonder, what, where do we go? Or my my partner doesn't want to get help or that we're working with this therapist who's just kind of colluding with them, you know, not really, I mean, wh where for, for the part, for the betrayed partner, for the, the offending partner, for, for all the people, where, where do things start? And I get that every case might be a little different, but what are some good general guidelines? So like I, I mentioned earlier, you know, in these cases, residential treatment is really important because the risks are so high. Yeah. You know, I would absolutely start with residential treatment. Um, we have a, a list of resources on our website, sexhelp.com and itap.com. Both of them have treatment facilities that have trained therapists at them. Great. Um, that, you know, they don't take, you know, they, 
treatment centers can vary in terms of how much of the, what types of clients they'll take uh-huh. and how much offending behaviors they'll take. You have some that are, you know, open to taking offending and you have others that don't take any, and then you have some in the middle. So it's important to kind of call around to different facilities and, and do yes. your work and do research and make sure you're getting a place that, you know, takes these kinds of cases regularly so they know how to handle them. They have, you know, appropriately trained staff on board uh, that can really help. And I would say for a partner in this situation that if you had, if your um, loved one is is reluctant to get treatment, this would be, in my opinion, one of those times to really set a boundary and say, you know, this is this is crossed the line and, and you need more intensive care because this isn't the kind of thing that you can just leave untreated and, you know, think you can manage on your own. And what you can get in residential treatment in six weeks, you can get, you know, two, two years worth of therapy kind of packed into right. a six-week time frame or an eight-week time frame. And so you just cannot get the same kind of running start outpatient it just and and i feel like this is just too serious of an issue to try and do on an outpatient basis yeah and they can really a treatment center when you when you go in you know they really work with people on their aftercare plan so every good facility will have a very detailed aftercare plan and it's not uncommon for facilities like this to refer in, you know, to, you know, sex offender treatment if that's warranted or, per, you know, treatment person for personality disorders afterwards. And so sometimes you can have a longer term treatment trajectory with these kinds of cases. And so a lot of, you know, I'm thinking through some of the conversations I've had with people over the years where and I recognize that there's a lot of trauma in partners, betrayed partners and family members who um, are worried about the long-term consequences of this or the finances of putting someone inpatient or just, you know, the time off from work. There's so much, right. That there's such a domino effect of just consequences with these situations. And sometimes they can say things to me like, well, it only happened once or it's not, you know, it doesn't, it, this is not like a pattern or, and what what would you say to that as far as even something like inpatient? A lot of times people just want to start with outpatient. They want to start with a, a lesser level of treatment so that they they can maybe maintain their life the same way. What would you say to that? I would say that it's really important not to minimize these mm-hmm. kinds of things. And in my experience, when you have a kind of boundary violation like that, it's you'll see that kind of behavior in other areas yeah you know so you might see some you know intrusive quality to their behavior and or the the type of violation can permeate into other areas and you know can just it's too risky in my opinion and there's too much vulnerability for it to happen again because you know, obviously we know that, you know, people, especially people with addictive and compulsive behavior, minimize and hide what they've been doing. They lie about it. They gaslight about it. 
And so you might know about one piece of it mm-hmm. that they might be, but there could be other things. And it yeah. really, you just don't want to buy into any minimization with that. And I treat all of these things as very serious. Right, exactly. Even one time, you know, can you risk that happening a second time? Do you really want mm-hmm. to take that risk? And, and like you said, I I think there's there's such a tendency to 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 for a lot of people that get caught, especially they're maybe relieved that nobody else knows the rest of it or that that they're willing to own up to the one thing. But oftentimes when people say to me, well, I don't, there's not a pattern that's a one-off. It's like, well, it's the one you've seen. Right. And I'm not trying to be cynical or whatever. It's just that experience shows that it's really not like the perfect timing where you happen to just discover the one solitary time this has ever happened. Not to mention, like you said, and I love what you were saying, there's a mindset, there's rules and beliefs and entitlements and, and, risks that are already being taken in so many other areas that maybe aren't even sexualized where there maybe aren't any overt victims, but it's just starting. It's like there's mindset and grooming behaviors and all kinds of other stuff going on that could eventually spark a fire down the road. And you want to just do a nice clean sweep and make sure that the whole operating system is reprogrammed, if you will, for maybe a lack of better metaphor, but that's that's the idea here. Is there's there's some there's some faulty thinking going on here with that person. Absolutely, absolutely. And you do want to get to the core issues as we were talking. That's right. About is this a personality issue? Is it if that is continually festering and is unresolved, then you know you're not your life isn't going to change, right? And and it's not to put fear in people's hearts that this is you know you know, this always happens. There's always going to be another one, but the potential is there. And because the risk is so high, you just don't, it's just not worth taking the risk. And, you know, it's, I know it's a financial sacrifice for people to go to treatment oftentimes, but it's also the, again, that, that risk and the potential financial consequences of being caught or getting legal consequences and all of that, you know, it's just so much better to prevent further issues from happening than to be on cleanup duty after the fact. Yeah, well stated. Well stated. We definitely aren't trying to sensationalize or incite panic, but there's been enough experience clearly from your side of things and the work that you do that it's like you, you keep using the word, it's just not worth the risk. The consequences are already high enough and, and potentially could be higher. Let's talk about the healing journey what this looks like just overall, and especially examples of what healing can look like. And I appreciate your, you know, your humanistic approach to this and your willingness to, to speak up about the fact that we're dealing with humans here who need healing. And there, there obviously have to be consequences and boundaries. And we can't just pretend that, that that's not a part of this. That's huge. But sometimes we forget that there is a healing component to this as well for those who cross those lines but also for their family members. So I'd love to hear what what you've seen and uh, share some examples of that. Yeah, I I think what I would emphasize is that even, you know, in all situations with sex addiction and, you know, recovery is a long-term journey, right? This is, we talk, you know, uh, Pat, my my dad always says, recovery is a three to five year process. And that 
is, you know, but it's also still a lifelong journey after that. But the, the early recovery piece where that is intensive is a three to five year process. And I would say that for, for this population, it is, you, I mean, it has to be intensive treatment and it's long, definitely a long-term journey and something that is lifelong. And so that's, it's really important to just get that mindset right off the bat. And that's not just for the person that's struggling, it's also for the family and the, the partners. And if, especially if the couple wants to stay together and, you know, this, you know, couples healing from this kind of trauma is very, you know, is a long-term arduous process. And so it's important for people to be realistic that this is going to, it takes a lot of work. It takes a hundred percent surrendering to the recovery process in every, you know, in every way and really following the treatment plan and working a solid program and, you know, being involved in group and having accountability and, you know, being very focused and dedicated to recovery. And that's for, you know, really the whole family. Right, right. Yeah. And I, and I think that, like you said, in terms of minimizing, I, of course, nobody wants to sign up for something like that. The financial burden, as you put it, but just the time and the energy and the vulnerability sometimes, you know, and, and I don't judge anyone who decides they need to move on from that. If you're a family member or partner and have that space, but for people who want to stay in it and do that work, my hat's off to them. It's going to take a lot of work and a lot of commitment. And thankfully there's resources and, and help out there. And we'll talk about that here in a minute, but but as far as what's possible in terms of change, what have you seen? What What is possible? Yeah, well, I always tell people in recovery, especially when they are feeling kind of hopeless at the beginning, that, you know, recovering addicts can make great partners. Yeah. They can make great life partners because a lot of the, and, and great human beings, <laughs> you know, because so a lot of skills that they're learning in recovery are the skills required to be a good person and be, uh, you know, a, a good partner in a relationship. So they learn how to be more intimate and vulnerable in their groups and in their therapy. They learn the values of recovery, like in integrity and honesty and, you know, all, you know, all of those, you know, taking responsibility and ownership and, and all of those things that we teach in, in recovery are the skills that it takes to be a good person and a good partner. So when, you know, recovery is transformation, it's a potential transformation for people to be the man or the woman that they want to be and that they've always dreamed and known on some level that they could, you know, living in their integrity and being a good partner. And so it's, I think it's really important for people to hold on to hope for that mm -hmm. because it is possible. I've seen, you know, I know a ton of recovering people and, you know, that have been in recovery for years. And, and I've so often heard things in coupleships when there's long-term recovery of people saying, Oh, you know, we would have never gotten to this place in our relationship had this crisis not happened. You know, and I think it's really hard for people that are in the early stages to ever think that for they sure. could someday be in a better place. For sure. But it's 
possible. And I think people need to hold on to that hope and understanding that they're growing and they're transforming in who they are as people. And that, you know, recovery is, is really possible. And this applies for people that cross these, violate these boundaries and, and stuff like what we're talking about, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's been my experience too, is that they, in fact, I feel like people that have done that work where they've really crossed lines and violated another person and there's been victims, the level of, of compassion and empathy that they have for other people and how careful and aware they are, like you said, can make them a really safe person. Like that can change. Yeah. And, you know, you and I are both saying, look, this is not going to happen in a weekend workshop, or this isn't going to happen right. by reading a book <laughs> or, you know, attending a few sessions of individual counseling like this is, or going through the 12 steps one time, you know, this is very much a lifetime commitment and it, and it evolves into that. But whether you end up staying in that relationship or not, whether or not you are able to maintain things intact the way they were before the discovery or the the accountability had to be set in place. There is individual change and healing available for anybody who wants to do the work. Absolutely. It's always the message. Yeah, absolutely. And for partners, for betrayed partners, what does that healing trajectory look and feel like? So, um, you know, I really recommend for partners that they get in a group, some kind of group support as well, you know, their own therapist, their own healing process. You know, like you mentioned earlier, this kind of issue is very isolating. So they at least need to have a few people that are, you know, that they can confide in, that are cheerleaders for them and that they, you know, can build a little bit of a support system. You know, like you said earlier, some people can be very judgmental. Yeah. So it's very important to be, you know, choosy about who those people are and you know, select people that aren't going to judge you whether you stay in the relationship or not, that are not going to try and persuade you what, you know, are really going to respect your decision-making process and, you know, kind of allow you to go on your path and just be that support system. And sometimes people don't have that in their family and in their regular support system. So getting that through therapeutic process, like a partner support group or partner uh, like a 12-step group can be, is really important. There are also you know, are treatment facilities that can support partners through intensives or, you know, a facility that specializes in trauma work can also help a partner, you know, work through some of their own things. There are many, many great intensives out, out, out there. Yeah. So we have helping them work through that trauma and their helping them set boundaries and get that support system in place and help them feel supported and validated and, you know, all of those important things. Yeah. So true that those immersive experiences early on in recovery for these betrayed partners can really give them their emotional balance back quickly and help set them on a path where they can keep and maintain or set and maintain boundaries and protect themselves and their families while everybody's trying to get their bearings and do this long-term work. And so, I mean, what I'm really hearing over and over again is with these, these really acute violations of other people and these, these offending type behaviors, you can't be passive and hope things will just work out. You have to come in really assertively, really aggressively in a way and just start kind of taking the bull by the horns, as it were, just really just wrangling this thing to get it in, in, in check for safety reasons, to contain trauma 
to get people stabilized because the crater that this thing blows open is pretty big. And right. we have to sort of make the treatment, as they say, the bandage has to match the wound. And so you have to be, you have to be pretty, pretty assertive about making sure you get those supports in place. Otherwise, this thing will just you know, limp along for years and may never heal and there could be more consequences. And also for the children, because at, oftentimes, you know, the, the, there's so much distress within the coupleship yeah. that sometimes the children are forgotten oh, yeah. and the impact this has on them. But this is a huge trauma for a child to find out that their parent has, you know, kind of crossed the line into offending. You know, there's a lot of confusion that that brings up for children and a lot of fear oftentimes what does that mean for me in terms of my stability my financial future you know am i safe with this person right. you know there's all right. sort you know with questions that you know about sexuality and uh, am i going to be like this parent or you know do i have to <laughs> dress differently now and you know those you know around when i'm around this person you know lots of different fears that a child can have coming up when they learn about this, it's, you know, blows their mind. Sometimes depending on the age, they don't understand the concept of addiction. They don't even understand sex. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's all an abstract concept for them. And so wrapping their heads around sex addiction or sex offending is like, you know, a huge leap in terms of what that means. And so they need their own support too. And they oftentimes can't get that through people at school, you know, you know, telling, sharing with their friends, like take a middle, middle school child, you know, right. Middle schoolers are just cruel <laughs> to each other oftentimes. And, you know, sharing something like this at school isn't safe. So no. depending on the situation, they're going to need some sort of support as well. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, not even a school counselor in some cases will be equipped to to know what to do with something like this. So those are yeah, thank you for including the the children who absolutely need our our best attention and support because they're the next generation. They can carry these patterns into a whole nother generation, and we, you know, there's a chance to stop that and to heal. So thank you for for all of that. I I just love how much we've covered here. This is so important. These are answers I think a lot of people wonder about, and it's the clarity is so so important because it's it is different. I mean, it's there's a lot of overlap, like you said, but but in terms of really understanding and not minimizing the impact that this really has and can have, I think it's significant. So I appreciate you just walking us through that. Resources, as far as where people can get help, I'm going to link in the show notes here to sexhelp.com and the ITAP website. Is that the best place to start? Or are there other resources you would point people to? Yeah, I would encourage them to start there because they can go under a therapist locator and find type their zip code in and find somebody in the area. Also the SASH website, there's practitioners on that website that often have really good training as well. And then the treatment facilities on sexhelp.com, they okay. all have trained people. So, you know, starting there and then meeting with a therapist to really make a plan. And usually, I mean, you're going to need somebody local to work with on an ongoing basis, right. but then getting to the right facility somebody that can advise you to get to the right facility and start getting your work done. What kind of, when somebody's looking for a therapist, like on a therapist locator, looking for a treatment provider to handle something of this magnitude, what are some of the key 
qualifications or titles or training that they might look for? Yeah. So, I mean, if you can get, you know, certainly it kind of depends, honestly, again, with the presentation, you know, sure. so if, if you do have somebody that's more in uh, on the offender end of the spectrum, you know, making sure you're getting somebody with the sex offender treatment provider in that, you know, in that state is going to be important. You know, having a, a, a CSAT on board, certified sex addiction therapist, you know, also it could be extremely helpful depending on the presentation. If they have trauma training, depending on if there's a lot of trauma history, you know, being a EMDR practitioner or maternal family systems or somatic experiencing, that goes for partners as well. Um, there's the partners being a uh, there are two different specialist organizations. There are two different certifications for partners. You have the APSATS certification and then the CPTT certified partner trauma therapist credential. Both of those could be really helpful in terms of for the partner work. So those yeah. would be some things that I would look for. Yeah, and really being driven by a good assessment, as you said in the in the earlier part of this podcast, to know really what kind of help and hopefully whoever, you know, listeners, whoever you might end up working with would understand their own scope and then make sure to refer out and get you to the right place because, you know, not everybody can handle everything. And so we need to make sure, you know, you get a good team together to help you with this, especially if there are serious offending behaviors. And I I think as far as offending behaviors, making sure someone has that training and working with with offenders and, and understanding all the nuances and all the things that go with that. Yeah. And most therapists, if they're not, if that's not in their scope of competence or scope of practice, they will refer out. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. That's yeah. been my experience. I think most therapists are like, are pretty aware that, you know, they either have that training or they don't. It's not, right. not a gray area by any stretch. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much for making time to talk about this, but also just bringing your wealth of knowledge and expertise and experience with this this very challenging issue and providing answers that will be available to people who might listen to this and and hopefully get them on the on a healing path so i sure appreciate what you're doing and anything else you'd like to say in conclusion here before we wrap up no if anybody wants to find me they can uh, i i'm a senior fellow at the meadows so we have two residential programs there one for men and one for women general path and Willow House, or um, you can reach out to me at ICAP. So Stephanie at IITAP.com. So we are the training organization for the CSAT training and the CPTT training, which I, I am involved in both of those trainings. So fantastic. Um, you can track me down that way or or find some of my books on Amazon. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I'm gonna I'm gonna link all of this stuff in the show notes so people know how to find you and all the great things you've created. Your work has, you know, definitely been a huge influence on my work and I appreciate just what you've brought over the years and, and contributed to our field. So yeah, I'll make sure the listeners have all the links, all the resources so they can benefit from that wealth of uh, information that you've, you've created. So your body of work. Great. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. I want to thank Dr. Stephanie Carnes for joining me on this podcast. It was fantastic to visit with her and really access this great body of knowledge that she has around these issues. It's just so helpful to have that clarity and that guidance with something that can be so overwhelming and confusing for a lot of people, understandably so. This stuff really rocks the foundation of 
of so many people's worlds and just can be overwhelming and disorienting. So thank you, Dr. Carnes, for jumping on here and offering that kind of clarity and support. As far as finding her work and what she's doing, like we mentioned in the podcast, I'll put links in the show notes to everything. She's got so much that you can access. And so I want to make sure it's all in there and I'll make sure to to have that for you. So check that out and please use her work as a resource in your own healing. I think you'll find it very beneficial. She's a very clear thinker, very great teacher, and really does break down these complicated concepts into an easy to digest format. And again, it's, it's been a huge impact on my work as well. So thank you so much. I just really appreciate you and the great work that you're doing. And for all of you listeners, thank you for joining us. Thank you for sticking in here this long and supporting this podcast through over 100 episodes. It's just great to spend each week with you talking about these things, bringing you these guests and these resources. And I would love for you to jump over and connect with me more on my website, fromcrisis2connection.com, where you can find courses, articles, archives of the podcast, and other resources. I'd love to connect with you there and on social media. So please jump on there and uh, let's talk. Let's see what you need. I'd love to hear feedback from everyone. The input that people have given me about this show and about the guests and ideas and suggestions and feedback have made a huge difference. And I do listen and care about what you think. So don't hesitate. Don't be shy. I'd love to hear from you and know what you need so that we can continue delivering episodes that really match what you're looking for. In fact, this episode was spurred on by emails from different people who were looking for resources in this area. And so I put this together and Dr. Carnes was gracious enough to come on and support us in that. But uh, yeah, this exists because of someone speaking up about it and asking for more direction in this area. So if you have an area that needs that kind of clarity and support, let's talk about it because I'm sure I can find someone and we can work together to give you answers. Thanks everyone. It's good to be with you each and every single week. And I look forward to connecting with you in the next episode. 